It was very commonly said uh, following World War II and the Holocaust by many Jewish leaders, this was expressed, um, that had more uh, Jews in Europe listened, um, in quotation marks, to um, Zionist leaders, leaders of the Jewish Agency and others, to move to Eretz Yisrael prior to the war than fewer people would have been killed by the Holocaust because Eretz Yisrael was a safe haven and nothing happened to it. And, um, and apparently they knew that nothing would happen to it. And uh, therefore, they should have gone. So um, not, while not getting into the whole political uh, aspect of it at this point, perhaps for a different opportunity, but the truth of the matter is, is that Eretz Yisrael was very closely threatened, and therefore it was not exactly a safe haven. In retrospect, it turned out to be in the last second. The British did stop the German advance, but there was no way that anyone could have known that at the time. Um, and therefore Eretz Yisrael itself was very closely threatened, was very almost uh, very close to being conquered by the advancing German armies, and uh, the consequences could have been quite dire. So this is Yehudi Geber with Jewish History uh, Soundbites, a, another, another podcast um, on Jewish history to talk a little bit about the Battle of El El Amen in World War II and how the German army almost conquered Palestine from the British, or Eretz Yisrael, as the Jews referred to it. And, and unfortunately... Um, how things could have been, could have been, and fortunately, how they did turn out, and um, the Germans did not succeed. Very, very uh, fortunate and um, an amazing story about how things turned around, and all the legends that abound and are attached to it, especially at a time where it's near the Arachayim HaKadosh's yard site, and many of the legends that are attributed to the stopping the German advance are connected with tefillahs that were said by the Arachayim HaKadosh's yard site and at his graveside during the days of the first battle of El Elamen. So just to give some context before we get to uh, the Arachayim and the tefillahs that were there, um, the North African Front um, and the Mediterranean Sea was a f- battlefront in during World War II, mainly between the Germans um, and the Italians on one side and the British on the other. And the control of the Mediterranean was one of the strategic goals of the German Navy to ensure German shipping, to ensure the flow of oil from the Mediter- from the from the Middle East through mainly Spain, neutral Spain, um, fascist neutral Spain, to Germany, and for other strategic reasons. And it eventually brought him to North Africa for in a couple of ways. Number one, the Italians were in North Africa. The Italians were allies. Benito Mussolini was an ally of Hitler. And they controlled uh, certain parts of North Africa, Tunisia, Libya, and Vichy France, which was a vassal of Germany, had possessions in North Africa also. France had been conquered by the German army. There was a puppet government in southern France called Vichy, which was 
under and collaborating with Nazi Germany, and they had North African possessions as well, Algeria, um, Morocco, and, um, and other places. So it brings Germany to North Africa, and the one running the German army in North Africa, the Wehrmacht, which is the German army, is one of the most celebrated and legendary German generals, field marshal by that time, Erwin Rommel who was a national hero in Germany, called the Desert Fox for his tank warfare in, uh, in North Africa. And Hitler's war strategy um, in the long term was to c conquer the entire North Africa, which would cut off the seaports. Um, it would destroy the British Navy in the Mediterranean. The British were holding strong at a little island off of Italy called Malta. And uh, the long-term goals beyond that were to reach the Suez Canal, which would cut off the British Navy from India and from all its Far East possessions. Even further strategic goals would be to reach the oil fields in the Middle East. And even further strategic goals would be to meet up in a pincer movement, meet up with the German armies in the East, in the Eastern Campaign, the German armies fighting in Russia. As far as Hitler was concerned, World War II, for him, was being fought in Russia. Um, all the other fronts were small stuff. He didn't pay much attention to it. He didn't dev devote much manpower. And although in the West, and all the history books in the West, especially in England, the North African front is a major story, the Western front is a major story, as far as Hitler was concerned, it was not. His major, his major story was started on June 22, 1941, Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union. His invasion, his, his, his war was against Russia, was against Stalin, was in the Soviet Union. Just to put things into proportion, at the peak of the, the campaign in the East against Russia, um, the Wehrmacht had well over 150 divisions uh, devoted to the cause, probably over 200 divisions, I don't know the exact number, hundreds of divisions across the whole Eastern Front. In North Africa, Rommel always complained that he was short of manpower, short of tanks. He, he never had more than seven divisions, and that included some Italian divisions. It was literally almost nothing in comparison. And uh, again, like I said, the long-term strategic goals would be if in the East he would get penetrate Russia and the Soviet Union far enough and move far enough south, he would be able to meet up with... Um, his armies that would conquer North Africa and the Middle East, and this way he would be the master of pretty much the main part of the world at that point. That's his long-term goals. He obviously never came close to that, both in Russia and in North Africa, but he did come close to Eretz Yisrael. Um, the Yishuv in Eretz Yisrael during World War II consisted of about 400,000 Jews. Just again, to give a little bit of context and proportion, um, there were more Jews living at the time in the Warsaw Ghetto during the Nazi occupation than there were in the entire Eretz Yisrael. It was a very small, um, spread out Tel Aviv, Yerushalayim, the new Yishuvim, the new Kibbutzim across Eretz Yisrael, um, approximately 400,000. They are busy building the land, the religious communities, both in Tel Aviv and Yerushalayim, and the secular communities in the Kibbutzim, Tel Aviv, other places, the Jewish agency, 
um, is, is building the infrastructure of what they dream is going to be a future state. And Rommel is approaching. The Yishuv goes into a panic. The Haganah plans on defending um, in the Yishuv till its last man. The, the, um, the um, High Commissioner, the British High Commissioner, who's basically the governor of the British Mandate over Palestine at the time, informs the Haganah leaders, the leaders of the Jewish agency, that if uh, Rommel crosses the Suez Canal, then the British are abandoning the Middle East, all their Middle East possessions, meaning uh, Palestine, Jordan, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, they're all Middle East possessions of the British, and they're going to abandon it, fall back to India. That's where the British are holding if uh, Rommel crosses the Suez Canal, and they're on their own. They're, they're leaving them. So the Haganah arms themselves. They plan on making a last stand at Har HaKarmel, near Haifa, and they call it Mivtsa Matsada Carmel to have like this a whole tunnel system and caves, and they're going to defend themselves to the last man. And the reason they name it Matsada Carmel is to invoke the memory of Matsada after the destruction of the second base of Mikdash, that everyone's going to be there and shoot to their last bullet till the last man and commit suicide because they're not going to let the Nazis take them alive. The Nazis' final solution included every Jew they ever encountered. They planned on uh, destroying and exterminating the Jews of North Africa. And of course, if they would conquer Israel, they planned on exterminating the Jews in Israel. Their final solution was not limited to the Jews of Europe. It was not limited to what type of Jew a Jew was. It was a racial theory that the Nazis had. And therefore, they planned on getting every single Jew in the world if their armies would simply reach there. They even had an SS unit of the Einsatzgruppen in Greece ready to disembark, ready to embark across the Mediterranean to Egypt to take care of the Jewish community of Egypt and Palestine. They were just waiting for the German army to finish conquering Egypt and Palestine, but they already had a designated SS unit of the Einsatzgruppen. That's not so well known. That was ready to go, and they were a team already assembled. Um, The Jews of North Africa also were set out to be exterminated. The the great um, Mazel, the great... Siata de Shmaya, the great, uh, the great miracle was that, that the Germans were not in North Africa long enough to be able to set up ghettos and to be able to deport them en masse to the death camps in Europe. There were some who were sent to concentration camps. The Holocaust in North Africa is a story in itself. But the Nazi final solution was definitely planned for everyone, and therefore the Yishuv planned accordingly. So the Yishuv had already been affected by World War II. There was an Italian, the Italian Air Force actually had a bombing raid in Tel Aviv. And some Jews were killed. Um, the British had decided to invade Syria and Lebanon because they were possessions of Vichy France. They were colonies of Vichy France, which was now a collaborator with Nazi Germany. And they took, uh, they drafted members of the Jewish Yishuv into the British army to invade Syria. And that's where a lot of the members of the Haganah got their military experience, provided for free by the British and the British Army during World War II and an invasion of Syria. And these later became the officer corps of the Haganah and later of the Israeli army. And Hashem works in interesting ways to have them have the professional soldiers uh, being trained by the British themselves in what later would become the nucleus of the Israeli army. In fact, Moshe Dayan, the future uh, later for general and then chief of staff and later minister of defense of the state of Israel, is the, the hero of many most of the early uh, military campaigns in Israel, 
He had his famous patch where he lost his eye and that became his kind of his trademark. He lost his eye in a military campaign wearing a British uniform fighting for the British in Syria during World War II. That's where he actually lost his eye. And uh, it's also an interesting. In any event, the Rommel is racing across Egypt, seemingly unstoppable. And in July of 1942, 60 miles from Alexandria, understand how close he is to the Suez Canal, how close he is to Palestine, to Israel. And he is stopped in the first battle of El Alamein. Uh, the German advance is for the first time stopped. That's the first miracle of El Alamein. And, and Rommel is stopped in the desert. He is, his supply lines are stretched way too far. They're all the way from Benghazi, Benghazi and Tripoli. And uh, to bring it across the desert, he's undersupplied, under no, not enough tanks. Hitler's not supplying him with any more soldiers or tanks because he's using it for his campaign in the east against Russia. Um, and, and his advance is stopped by the British. The British regroup. And then they go on an offensive. Um, Rommel is, uh, is unable to, to stop them this time. And in October of 1942, in the Second Battle of El El Amen, which is several months later, um, he is pushed back. He goes on the defensive. He goes on a retreat. The Italian divisions with him collapse. And he goes on a long retreat all the way back to Tunisia, across North Africa. He asks permission for from Hitler to make an orderly retreat. And Hitler, like he was to do throughout the war, sabotaged all his general's plans because he was fanatic about not retreating, fighting to the last man, fighting for the honor of Germany, for the nation. And he orders Rommel not to retreat. Rommel claims he's stunned by the order. He tries to follow it, but is unable to do so. And they go into full retreat. That's the second miracle of El Amin, that Rommel is completely pushed back across the desert. In British uh, military history, and to a certain extent in the entire West, this is considered a major turning point of the war. October 1942, Churchill, as he was wont to do, came up with the good lines. He said, this is not the end, this is not even the beginning of the end, but it is the end of the beginning. And he said another line, he said, before El Alamein, he means the second battle of El Alamein, we knew no defeat, we knew no win, excuse me, after El Alamein, we knew no defeat. And um, that was considered a major turning point. Of course, when you compare it to the other fronts, um, such as the turning point in the east, the Battle of Stalingrad, or when the Russian army went on the offensive in the Battle of Kursk in July of 1943, the El Alamein does not seem to be a major turning point. Or when you compare it to the American armies in the Far East fighting Japan, the Battle of Midway, or later on, which happened at almost the same time as El Alamein, good luck now, I'm for sure pronouncing it wrong, uh, these naval battles against the Imperial Japanese Navy in the Far East also were much made, more major turning points, but we'll give it to Churchill and the British Army, especially Field Marshal Bernard Law Montgomery, who was a very, very uh, haughty and proud of himself uh, general in the British Army. So let's call it the turning point. In any event, um, there was... The panic in the Yishuv and Eretz Yisrael during this entire time. What are they going to do? Like I said, the Haganah prepared their defense at Harakarmel, but the religious Jewish community is preparing in their own way like they do throughout the ages. The Chartka Rebbe went for 40 days up to Ramir Balanes with many other Yidin to Davin 
Rabbi Yisrael of Husyatan, the Husyatan Rebbe, another original dynasty, went up to the Archaim HaKadosh's kever on his yard site. Rabbi Shlomka Zviller went up to the Archaim HaKadosh's kever on his yard site. And the yard site takes place just around the same time as the first battle of El Alamein, when the German advance is stopped. And there's an amazing amount of legends that are associated with it. First of all, who was it? Was it the Husyatan Rebbe? Was it Rabbi Shlomka Zviller? Was it both? And there's stories about how Shlomka Zviller went to the mikveh beforehand, and then the question is, what did they see when they got to the kever? Did they just daven, and Hashem answered their prayers? Or did they see smoke there? They saw the Shem Havaya there. Um, people were davening by the Kaisel at the same time. Minyanim, Cheder, children of Yerushalayim. People were crying. People were shaking in fear. And I even saw an even more incredible legend, which is, makes the whole thing more fantastic, that it wasn't the Husyatan Rebbe or Reb Shleim of Zvil, it was Reb Chaim Zunnenfeld, which is amazing because he died 10 years before this story even took place. So to say that he also came to the Arachayim HaKadosh's Kever and Davin just makes the story even more unbelievable. But uh, apparently it was the Husyatan Rebbe and Reb Shleim of Zvil who davened by the Arachayim HaKadosh. They did daven. And when they davened, um, um, right around then, the German advance during the first battle of El Alamein, not the turning point battle, which happened in October, which was several months later, but the first battle, the German advance is stopped. All the tefillahs at Rameir Balanes, at the Arachayim HaKadosh, of these big, big tzaddikim, of everyone in Yerushalayim, of everyone davening by the Kaisel, people went to Shimon HaTzadik's kever in Yerushalayim. There are stories abound of the amount of tefillah, the amount of davening that took place, and Hashem, of course, answered all those fields. It's hard to find the cause and effect. Was it because of the Arachayim HaKadosh? Maybe it was because of the people by the Kaisel. Maybe it was because of the charge of Rebbe by Rameh Balanes. Um, it's, it's obviously hard to know the cause. Um, Hashem made the nais happen in a very natural way. It was a nais of Derech HaTeva, what it's called, because the the from a military point of view, it made sense that the events should be stopped. The British were numerically more powerful. They had more tanks. The Rommel supply lines were short. Um, so it wasn't a, a inexplicable military nace. It made a lot of sense. But obviously we know that the prayers always help and always uh, influence the course of events. I even saw that it was, it was a, that they tried to make it that it was a miracle because the German army was supposed to win, but they ended up, their water supply ended up being seawater, which was salty and not fresh water, and they all died of thirst and dehydration in the desert, and which sounds a lot like the story with Sancheir of surrounding Yerushalayim, so I guess that's where the uh, source of the legend comes from. But in a military sense, the battle was a, a, um, a foregone conclusion in, in, in uh, Montgomery's favor against Rommel, and um, from a religious perspective, the amount of tefillahs that were done definitely had an influence. Although, it's, it's important to remember that at the same time, in the summer of 1942, when this is all happening, that's when Polish Jewry is getting completely decimated, exterminated in the uh, gas chambers of Treblinka, Belzec, and Sobibor, and I'm sure many Jews in Poland and many tzaddikim in Poland davened as well. There are also Kivri tzaddikim in Poland, which perhaps they even davened by and, uh, you know, the, we don't understand exactly why uh, what some, one community is saved and why another community is not. And it's probably not for us to understand. 
but it's for us to believe that these tefillahs do help, and it's for us to also to tell the story. Interestingly, in that same November, um, because of what was happening in Poland, the Ger Rebbe, who had escaped Tarot Yisrael shortly before, the Emre Emes, he arranges with the Rabbanut of, of Israel to have a, when, when things started to come back, what's happening to the Jews of Poland, they're being wiped out, so they make a fast day, a Yom Tefillah, to say Slichas, to Daven, and there's a famous picture of the Ger Rebbe, one of the last public pictures of his, one of his last public appearances, in the Churvashul in the old city, speaking about the decimation of Polish Jewry and how we all have to daven and do tshuva and fast. Very moving ceremony, a very uh, show of solidarity between the Jews of Eretz Yisrael to the Jews of Poland, what they were going through. That was also a Yom Tefillah, unfortunately, because the Ger Rebbe wanted everyone to be involved. He figured that the cause... Of, of Polish Jewry getting wiped out is a good enough cause for the Jewish people to actually get together and get along, but others uh, disagreed. And since he went along with the Rabbanut, which was the uh, associated with the Zionists, so Rabbi Yosef Svidushinsky and the Eid said, we can't participate in this Yom Tefillah and Fast Day, and we're making a separate Yom Tefillah and Fast Day for Polish Jewry. And uh, it very much hurt the Ger Rebbe. The Ger Rebbe had had this large community in Poland, and he very much identified with Polish Jewry, and it was hard for him to accept that for the cause of davening for Polish Jewry, we, they could not uh, break ranks and uh, daven altogether. Uh, so that was the Yom Tefillah for both uh, the saving of the Jews of Eretz Yisrael by the Battle of El Alamein, the Yom Tefillah following that for the Jews of Poland. This was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at YGEBSS at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and for tours. You can follow and subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. Don't miss an episode. And you can follow Jewish History Soundbites on Twitter at JSoundbites. And I hope you enjoyed.